Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Jessica Young. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Population Medicine at Harvard Medical School and the Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare Institute. So Jessica, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Tell me about, uh, I mean, what's population medicine? What's your work about? Well, so I am actually a a biostatistician. Uh, I'm one of a couple of faculty in the Department of Population Medicine who's a biostatistician. The remainder of the faculty are uh, PhDs in epidemiology and MDs. Um, As a biostatistician, I sort of wear two hats. I work on the application of uh, statistical methods for, for various questions in in public health and clinical medicine. Uh, And then the other hat I wear is I work on development of of methods. That's the the sort of two hats are uh, circular in that uh, applied problems tend tend to motivate the the methods work. And the the sort of focus of my my methods research is uh, causal inference, which is the formal process of understanding how to estimate causal effects from uh, data okay. collected in, in real-world studies. Yeah, well, I'm glad to talk to you. It's rare um, that someone does what you do, or it seems to be. So you probably are, I mean, you probably review many studies to make sure they're going to be statistically significant, and then when the outcomes of a given study come out, you're probably rolling your eyes a lot, you know, if, uh, if it's not significant or it is significant, and your world, I guess, is p-values and sensitivity and specificity and things like that, right? Well, actually, what's interesting is that uh, my world is very much not about p-values. Um, so p-values are a uh, sort of concept in um, classical s- statistics, which is really um, a, a measure, very much a measure of sample size. So you could see, for example, um you know, you could do a study that estimates the association between receiving some treatment and uh, and some having some disease outcome. Uh, and if you had millions and millions of individuals in that study, you could see a very very small p-value, um, even if the uh, association is is tiny, and that would have nothing to do with causal inference. Um, you, that would say nothing about whether that treatment actually affects that outcome. So what I do and what a lot of the people who work in causal inference do is we think about what are the assumptions, e- even if you saw uh, a very small p-value, even if you had a really large sample size, what are the assumptions you would uh, need to make to be able to interpret the association estimated from a study as in terms of a, a valid estimate of a causal effect. So what are some examples of that? Maybe famous studies you looked at or, or ones where the answer was the opposite of what the study put forth? Or 
What are some good examples? Yeah, so uh, sort of a classic, well, a, a, a sort of famous example happened a handful of years ago. So there uh, was an analysis using data from the nurse's health study. I, I don't know if you've heard of that study. Um, it's a longitudinal cohort study that followed uh, collected data on nurses beginning, I believe, in the, the 1970s and followed them over uh, time, collecting information on um, all kinds of um, medications and newly diagnosed diseases and measures of their health habits and so on. And they, using that data, they uh, estimated a protective or a, a, they estimated a lower risk of coronary heart disease uh, associated with hormone uh, therapy treatment. Then later in that analysis, they adjusted for many uh, so-called confounders because, because the study was not a randomized study. The hormone therapy in that study was simply, they'd simply assess whether individuals received hormone therapy or they didn't. Um, they didn't assign it themselves by a flip of a coin. So in, in that case, you have to be concerned that people who maybe received the treatment may be just systematically uh, different. Maybe they received the treatment for reasons that are associated with the outcome. So you have to sort of remove that uh, influence of those confounding factors. So they did conduct an oh, So, so, so yeah. you don't want people to self-select in a given experiment because they may be biasing. The people that say yes uh, are somehow maybe biased. Is that right, exactly. So maybe there's even a clearer example I, I could I could give you. So, for example, if you it, even just sort of a toy example, if you uh, if you let's say this is sort of a, an introductory example that's often considered in 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 sort of when you first learn about causal inference. So let's say that you were interested in the effect of um, taking an aspirin, right, uh, on uh, in a group of individuals who currently have a headache versus not giving them an aspirin on headache, your headache status a few hours later, right? So if you wanted to know that, one thing you could do is you could you could flip a coin to simply randomly choose who's going to get the aspirin and who's not going to get the aspirin. And then you're certain that um, sicker people, people who are not regardless of whether they got aspirin, would still have a headache later anyway, right? If there was no effect of the aspirin, you could still see a difference between the treated and untreated groups if the treated group just happened to be sicker, right? So if you, if you flip a coin, you ensure that you're not systematically getting people who are more likely to get the outcome in one group versus the other group. Does that does that make sense? Okay. Well, I would think maybe if um, I don't know if a hundred people had a, had a headache and fifty of them said, "All right, I'll take the the pill," you know, they would have the expectation that the pill maybe would help their headache go away. So it might bias their results and make it more positive than it otherwise might be. Yeah, exactly. So if if somebody who was choosing to take the aspirin, if they chose it themselves, right? or the doctor chose to give them a treatment because they're on death's door already, right? And so maybe people who take a treatment are just sicker because it's a last resort. So you could actually see at the end of the day, 
oh, people who took this treatment did worse than people who didn't. But it could be entirely because the people who took it just started out sick, right? And it could have nothing to do with the, with, with the treatment itself, which is why when you just flip a coin to assign people treatment, you ensure that there's no systematic differences between the treat, treated and the untreated. What are some of the other learnings from there? So the, the nurses' health study found a lower uh, risk of coronary heart disease associated with, with taking uh, estrogen therapy or hormone therapy. Then, and even though they sort of adjusted for these um, factors that could have made the people taking hormone therapy systematically different from the group of individuals in the study not, not taking it, the, later on, a trial was conducted that found the opposite. They found that, that there was greater risk of coronary heart disease associated with taking estrogen uh, therapy. And so the sort of common conclusion around that was, well, the reason we found a different result was because we um, used observational data where we didn't randomly assign people to the, to the treatment. So this is why the randomized trial found a, found a different answer. But one of the things that uh, we do in the field of causal inference is we sort of have formalized how to use observational data to, to explicitly target um, questions that would be answered in a trial. And what we and so some later authors reanalyzed the nurses' health study, and when uh, analyzing it in a way to directly target the um, same questions that were targeted in the in the the later trial, they actually found similar similar results. So sometimes observational studies will find uh, different answers than randomized trials because of the lack of randomization, but sometimes the, we find different answers because of the way the data were analyzed. Um, and so causal inference is sort of focused on not just finding uh, statistically significant differences, but also understanding whether sort of how to interpret the results of, a, of an observational analysis um, or any analysis of any real uh, data with respect to what, would, what assumptions would allow us to equate that statistical analysis to something that's unbiased for a, for a causal effect of interest. So I don't know, in general, how difficult is it to, uh, to get a real observation in a study? Do you see that a lot of studies are, are flawed when you look at them or you know, do they have their own people and they're pretty carefully prepared? Yeah, so it's a real, it's a real challenge. The, the biggest challenge, particularly when the goal of a study is to understand uh, causal effects, so is that there's something called the fundamental uh, challenge of causal inference, which is that a causal effect is a contrast in outcomes in the same individual or group of individuals but under different uh, treatment conditions. And the fundamental challenge of causal inference is that you can only ever observe an individual's outcome under one treatment condition. You'd have to have a time machine to go back and see, okay, I gave this person this treatment, I observed their outcome. In order to know what would have happened if I had given them a different treatment or no treatment at all, I'd have to go back in time 
right? And undo what I did, which is impossible. So no matter what study we've conducted, we always have to make assumptions in order to claim that an, a statistical analysis is unbiased for a causal effect, re regardless of whether the results are uh, statistically significant or not. And so many real-world studies, aside from sort of the usual statistical issues like sample size and is the population, uh, is the sample representative of, of the population we're interested in, if the goal is to estimate causal effects, we need more assumptions. So in, in principle, the, the randomized trial is always considered the the gold standard for estimating uh, causal effects because um, in, in a trial where everybody adheres to the, to the protocol of the trial, we're actually guaranteed the assumptions we need by, by the design of the study. But in real world uh, studies, we're, we're not guaranteed that even if the study is a trial um, because people may not adhere to the to the treatments that they were assigned uh, according to the protocol. Um, they may drop out of the study. And then in, in other uh, settings, we can't conduct a, a, a trial um, a trial at all for, for various reasons that may be practical, that may be ethical. So, yeah. Okay, I got you. Are a lot of studies, it doesn't seem like studies are directional. I would think that that would be more useful is do a study, see if there's a, a trend or a general thing that's happening and then do further ones that you know, really nail it down now that they think that you know there's a likelihood of X happening or is that what happens? Yeah, so there's definitely sort of a, a sequence of the types of studies that, that might be conducted if that's what you're asking. So for example, if you had a suspicion that there was, um, uh, so actually, and you can probably relate this to to, to the COVID crisis, right? Because we're sort of in real time trying to figure out what are the, you know, treatments we should be studying, what are promising treatments, and the ideas for that are going to be be based on what's what we've found in, in the past. So um, that could be based on just observing, um, based on existing uh, clinical data that, oh, we see associations between individuals who took this medication uh, were less likely than individuals who, who didn't take that medication to develop uh, complications. So once that's seen, then um, a, a tr maybe an investment in, in a trial would, would, be, would be justified because randomized trials are more expensive. They require more resources, whereas observational studies that just simply uh, measure what treatments people took, what outcomes they had, rather than the investigators uh, manipulating those treatments, um, those can often be conducted immediately based on existing data repo repositories, like existing, you know, electronic health record data from existing health systems, and um, so we can get answers more quickly. But those answers are going to be based on on many more uh, assumptions. So again, because the investigator didn't flip a coin to decide who, who receives who receives treatment and who doesn't. So at, at what point can large numbers overwhelm biases? So what's interesting is large numbers really 
can't overwhelm biases because bias is really relative to what it is you want to know. So if let's say you had, you wanted to know what is the causal effect, right, of taking some antiviral medication on uh, in individuals infected with COVID, right, on some outcome, and you enrolled, you had data on millions and millions of observations of individuals who, you know, and you had measures of um, whether they took this treatment or they didn't, and you had their out and you had measures of their outcomes, you could see an, an association that has nothing to do with causality. There could be no effect of that treatment on the outcome, but you could still see an association if doctors are choosing to give individuals uh, treatment who have a, a different background risk of disease than individuals who don't take treatment. So that's sort of a, a key concept of causal inference and really research in general is that bias is directly a function of what it is you want to know. So if you're not interested in simply an association between, say, a treatment and, and an outcome, which could be due to causal mechanisms or non-causal uh, reasons, uh, just simply due to the fact that maybe the treatment and the outcome share uh, common common causes of each other that can link them in a non-causal way, then you could have millions of observations and have a lot of certainty in your estimate of that association, but um, that doesn't guarantee that that association equals a, a causal effect. And causal effects are really, really what we need to drive treatment decisions, right? Well, I wonder why drug companies like, you know, let's say there's a drug that's supposed to lower cholesterol. I would think that some of these drugs are so widely prescribed they have millions of data points. Why couldn't they why wouldn't they go take all that data now? You know, maybe they started the study with 40 people randomized double blind, but now there's a million. You know, people say, Oh, that's anecdotal evidence, but that's a lot of data. You can't oh, figure yeah. out something from that. I mean, I, I would think that that's like super powerful. It is super powerful, exactly. So that's one of the advantages of observation. So when you say uh, many, many data points, you mean now that it's out there in use, right, uh, in, in practice. Yeah, is, is that done? Are they, you know, are drugs, for instance, looked at that way? You know, do, do, do drug companies, you think, collect data? Because now they've got just tons of data points, you know, and they can really refine and see what's going on. Or do they not care? And they're just like, oh, whatever. Well, whether drug companies care is, is another another question. I can't speak for them, but certainly scientists care. And they often, once a small trial has sort of shown that a drug is, a, is effective or it's as effective as, a, as an existing drug, then yes, once it starts uh, being used in practice, Sometimes follow-on observational studies are very useful for several reasons, including that um, they tend to cover more representative populations than, than trials. So when you conduct a trial, you're, you're really only able to um, say something about the people who enrolled in the trial, and, and, and you may have sort of a lower representation of um, people who would be candidates uh, in, in practice for this drug. So observational studies uh, are used to understand 
causal effects in, in, in more representative populations. So that's one, ex one reason. Larger sample sizes, as you said, is another reason. Um, also longer follow-up. So uh, sometimes um, trials have just a shorter, more constrained follow-up follow -up time. But then the trade-off is that because you're using um, observational data at where there was where you as the investigator did not intervene, but you simply observed, you have to make more assumptions in your in your analysis to interpret the effect estimates causally. Um, and so you have to be sure that you're co also collecting data and appropriately accounting for uh, reasons that individuals in practice might receive different treatments and how um, that could make individuals with uh, different treatment status in the real world not comparable with respect to their future outcomes. So you need to be able to account for those confounding factors in order to be sure that the association you're estimating is, is getting at the causal effect of the treatment on the outcome and not, um, not other ways in which the treatment and the outcome could be associated, which are not for causal reasons. What do you think of these uh, meta-analyses when they say, we, you know, we looked at 45, uh, you know, experiments that looked at the effects of ABC and we did a meta-analysis? Yeah. Are those useful? Um, so I think that there are issues with, with meta-analyses because they can be sort of combining information from different populations. But I think there are ways to conduct meta-analysis that, that could be useful. Actually, I have some colleagues who just published a, a paper on this that would sort of involve additional assumptions to consider how these estimates could represent a single population. But yeah, meta-analyses are useful, but they may need to account for more than, than is typically accounted for with regard to the um, different populations and uh, mm. different question, different uh, subtleties and questions that were considered in each study, what, you know, different confounders may have been adjusted for in each study. So, yeah. In scientific papers I've looked at, I don't see a list of assumptions. I mean, they kind of, I guess in the references, that's where the assumptions come in, but I don't see really a list of them. And I don't see a list of what the study creators think could be confounding factors. I think yeah, I see like a few statistics and stuff, but yeah, when you look at I, a study, how do you know if it's good or not? You know, if, if you're not an expert like you, like are there any things that jump out at you or people can look for? Yeah, so that's really interesting because so there's actually been sort of a almost a historical policy uh, in um, medical journals, which is very much due to some historical uh sort of decisions in the statistics community that goes kind of back to the 1920s or even earlier, that if you are uh, conducting, if, you're, if your analysis is of data coming from a trial, then you're allowed to be very explicit about what the, the, quest, what the causal question is and that the goal of the analysis is to estimate a causal effect. But in observational studies, because of the lack of randomization, a lot of that, and there's sort of almost been a, a not only an approval, but almost a requirement to, to bury that the goal of the analysis is to also to maybe estimate a causal effect. 
And the price of that is kind of what you're saying, that um, it can be very unclear what the question, what the explicit question was that the authors were trying to address. And without being clear about what that question is, it's almost impossible to assess what the assumptions are. So uh, one of the things we've been pushing for uh, in sort of the causal inference community, people who, who do this, is for more transparency uh, in the reporting of, of medical studies, where e even, if the, even if the data comes from an, an observational study, that the, the explicit question, the explicit goal of causal question of the analysis uh, is stated, um, and the assumptions can be much more uh, explicitly represented. Um, one way that, that one tool we have for doing that is called um, a causal diagram. So um, if, for example, you assume that my, my analysis adjusted for uh, race, sex, background, history of disease, a whole host of factors, uh, you could represent in a causal diagram, which represents your assumptions on the process that uh, generated the data, why you think that those are the confounders or that adjustment set is sufficient to remove any bias due to confounding. And then as a scientific community, we can maybe disagree with that, with that causal diagram, or we can um, talk about how that assumption might be violated. But yeah, it's very, it's very difficult because um, there are a lot of assumptions that go into this study and we, we need a, into a lot of these studies and we need a way to communicate those to broad audiences, including uh, doctors who are going to consume these results and um, uh, making decisions, helping their patients make, make decisions and patients and also the media because a, a lot of times the these results sort of get packaged. Oh, we found you know a, a statistically significant result, and therefore there's an association between you know eating fish three times a week and you know this disease. But there's often a, a lack of understanding beyond uh, just sample size and all the other concerns that we might have to have in, in interpreting that result uh, in terms of oh, this is. Uh, now something that should be translated to policy because we believe it will affect uh, these these outcomes. And there are a lot of assumptions that go into that. Okay, well, very good. Um, what do you think is going to be, I don't know, going forward, the role of biostatisticians and, you know, doing proper studies? Is it is it becoming, I mean, ever more important to do this or is it pretty well understood and, you know, studies just as long as they're done right, they're okay? Or like, where do you see the trends going for science? I do think that there continues to be a huge role for, for biostatisticians in, in research um, and more and more as uh, data sharing becomes more accepted and data, uh, the, the sources of data um, are becoming so much richer with, you know, mobile devices being able to collect information on our every move and um, that that data could be very useful, um, but the the statistics needed to analyze it um, are also then in turn going to become more and more complex because of the just high dimensions of, of those data. So there's a lot of work going on now in um, machine learning methods to try to get the you know to to handle these large amounts of data without making 
in, you know, overly restrictive uh, assumptions about the relationships between these very high dimensional sets of variables. So biostatisticians, people with expertise in uh, high dimensional computing is going to become more and more important, uh, I think, as we move forward. Very good. Jessica, what's the best way for people to uh, find out more and, you know, see what you're doing? Um, Well, I would definitely recommend for people who are interested in uh, learning more about causal inference, uh, Yuta Pearl, who is a computer scientist at UCLA, who's sort of one of the fathers of of a lot of these ideas, has recently put out a book that's actually uh, targeted for general audiences. I gave my parents a copy. Um, It's called The Book Mm. of Why. Uh, it's called the the book of why. So so that's a, a good uh, place to start for for people who are just interested in learning more about about causal inference and and kind of how we think about it, um, particularly when we, when we don't have a trial. And yeah, that's that's a really good place to to start. There's also uh, another book that's recently been published by by two of my mentors called What If by uh, Miguel Hernan and Jamie Robbins out of Harvard. Um, so that's a little more technical, but it's um, also a great, great resource. Yeah, I see the book of why. Okay. The New Science of Cause and Effect. Got it. Well, very good. Well, Jessica, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been uh, good to talk to you, and I appreciate it. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.